Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and thanks for listening. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the hosts of the channel, and today I spoke with Professor Eric Mugler about his new book, Songs of Dead Parents, Corpse, Text, and World in Southwest China. Eric is Professor of Anthropology at the University of Michigan, and this new book is the product of sustained, decades-long research with a community in Southwest China's Yunnan province. The book examines, in particular, how the Lolopo, a community officially identified as part of China's Yi minority ethnic group, work on the dead through a variety of rituals, oral traditions, and material practices. This poor explanation hardly does justice to the complexity of these practices and their importance to this group. So please listen on to this fascinating conversation as Eric explains it far more eloquently than I ever could. Hello, and welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, an occasional podcast featuring interviews with the authors of the latest monographs in the field of East Asian Studies. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the hosts of the channel, and today I'm delighted to be joined by renowned anthropologist and sinologist Eric Mugler to discuss his new book, Songs of Dead Parents. Eric is professor of anthropology at University of Michigan. Um, Eric, welcome to the program. Hi, Tim. I'm, thanks so much for having me on. Well, we're delighted to have you here. Um, So first off, Eric, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get started in anthropology in Southwest China? I guess I, I did, I started late. I went to China for the first time after graduating from college. I had a friend who got me a job teaching English in Xiamen in Fujian. And during the breaks, I traveled a lot. And I suppose I just really liked the Western part of China better than any other part and ended up back in graduate school hoping to do a PhD thesis on, well, I'm not quite sure on what. I, I, I mean, it certainly wasn't on ethnicity, but, it, but I, I, was, I was interested in, in the sort of Tibeto-Burman speaking people in, um, in in Yunnan and Sichuan. And uh, I think the thesis was supposed to be originally about sort of the civilizing process, if you will, uh, how these places kind of um, were, I suppose you might say, colonized. And, you know, the, it was a long road. So I, I, it took me a long time, really, to get permission to work anywhere. I had identified Yizu as people that seemed really interesting to me. And, and I, I think that there was just a lot of thrashing around. I mean, this was, um, this was some time ago. It was the late eighties before um, we had very much in English about any of these Tibeto Burman speaking people. And I don't know. Uh, I, I, I started out doing a little bit of preliminary field work actually near Lijiang um, and not with Izu at all, but, you know, in a little Nashi place that my friend Chas McCann had 
had suggested I, I, I go to. And I just, I met some Nosu, uh, which are, which are one of the people who are called Yi in China there. And they just seemed so kind of mm, interestingly different from other people I was meeting. And so after meeting them, I came back and, and, and wrote a proposal to work with Nosu. Um, and that didn't really work out. I, I wasn't allowed to go to, well, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't really allowed to go to any of the places either in Yunnan or Sichuan where, where Nosu were, were, were living. Uh, and instead, I, I, was, um, I was told, I, I I got a grant. From, gosh, this is turning into a long story, Tim. So anyway, I I, I ended up working with these um, folks who really no one had any interest in in um, in a place a county called Yongren, which is in the northern part of of uh, Yunnan, but but not the northwest, which is beautiful and touristy and everything, but just completely undistinguished mountains. Um, people who call themselves Lolopo and I ended up there just as a series of kind of mistakes, really, but was very fortunate to end up in a community um, where people took me on as their own kind of project, actually. So that's um, so that's kind of how I got started. Oh, that's great. I feel like the best fieldwork stories sort of start like that, with that sort of series of, of accidents that end up taking you to a good place. Yeah. Yeah. If you're lucky. Yeah. And I, 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 I was very lucky. Um, so I guess, I guess one of the things that stood out to me at the beginning was um, that this is your second project, your second book out of, so your third book overall, but your second with this particular community. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the process of writing a second book with the same community, because I feel like that's not something that everybody does in our fields. It's definitely different than writing uh, a first kind of ethnography about a community. If that's what, you know, you imagine anthropologists, and I'm an anthropologist, as, as you said, um, to do is, you know... Like there's this um, basically write a passage that allows us into the discipline, and that's and that's doing a, a, a term of fieldwork of, of a year or more, and and then writing an ethnography on, on a topic about a people. And you know, I I I suppose the biggest difference was there, I, there were two big differences. One was this second project was more focused on a specific set of problems and issues on um, death ritual and set aside many of the bigger and more amorphous questions that I had been challenged by in my first project. And the second difference is distance. Um, the second project was based in part on fieldwork I had done for the first project and in part on fieldwork done during a series of of visits over the years after that. And, um, you know, doing the first ethnography on, on this community, uh, I was really immersed in the place. And then part of, you know, the process of writing the ethnography had to do with 
you know, finding a way to, to kind of um, inhabit, uh, you know, my new circumstances of being a, a, a you know, a, a graduate student and then a, and then a scholar in the United States in a place where like everything that one could say about this place some, simply needed some kind of translation or some kind of filtering um, because, um, because it's otherwise it, it was simply couldn't be understood. And so that, that were sort of the conditions of the first project and the conditions of the second one were, were not so much, they, they were more distant and more um, I suppose that distance, um, you know, it was both good and bad. It gave me the the capacity to do a, a, a different kind of analysis. Um, yet, uh, perhaps because I wasn't as close, many of the kind of issues of of kind of everyday life that were that were really present for people in the community maybe faded out of of, of this second project. I mean, that's a really fascinating sort of way of uh, describing it. And so one of the ways you you talk about this project is you say it's, um, uh, or that a phrase that keeps on appearing is you talk about Lolopo, this community's work on the dead is sort of what this book sort of deals with. Now, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about what you mean by this. Say, as a Westerner, as an American, my own ways of, of understanding or dealing with the dead have to do with like basically dead people um, might have a kind of existence for me. Certainly do actually my own intimate dead in my mind as, you know, as figures from the past and possibly, you know, I mean, they have a presence and they have an existence in the presence and they affect my life. Yet I'm not called upon to do much to them or with them other than the mourning process. And once the mourning process is over, then there's remembering, but there's not active. uh, I'm not called upon to do active sustained work to, um, to shape, to maintain and shape my, my relations with them. And the contrast is that in in this community, this this community of Lolpo people, um, people who speak a, a language they call Longo, and who have uh, a who have their own sort of cultural resources um, that are quite different from most of the people around them, um, similar to other people called E in, in in many ways, but very different from Han, um, very different from Tibetans. In in this community, people really are called upon to actively in a sustained way work on and with dead people and it's it's thinking about this work that people were doing on and with dead people that that um caused me to shift in thinking about dead people from like imaginary presences that have an effect in people's lives to, you know, basically people <laughs> um, that are analogous to living people in so many ways and um, to thinking about all the ritualized activity and ritualized language that people use with the dead um, as the mediating, um, mediating processes that are, that are 
similar in many ways to the mediations that um, that shape our relations with living people. Um, another aspect of work on the dead is that um, is that dead people have a great deal of power. Dead ancestors, of course, you know, and throughout this region are the source of life. Dead people who are not ancestors have uh, a great deal of power to disrupt life and to disturb things. Um, work on the dead is what's required to, to manage that immense power and to, you know, to make sure that, you know, dead ancestors don't turn into other kinds of dead people like ghosts to um, cultivate dead ancestors in the way that you would maybe cultivate crops so that they, so that they're, they do provide one with health and, and, um, and a livelihood um, and a good, I suppose a good body and a good mind, um, all of those things. Uh, it, work on the dead is also uh, um, uh, a, work on the dead is also the, a kind of way to describe an, an immense amount of ritual that that also connects living people with each other as they assemble into um, groups and communities that um, that uh, that are intended to to shape relationships with, with dead people. So um, in this community, really, a great deal of collective action, even more than in the past these days, is focused on, on work, work on the dead or work with the dead. It's not focused on socialist ritual. It's, um, it's not focused on other kinds of collective projects as it was during the socialist era. It's really, you know, the occasions when people get together, get together to work on their relationships with dead people are the occasions that people get together, um, are, are the occasions for collective action of really um, any kind that, that um, transcends uh, the household. So work on the dead has become more and more important in the last couple of decades as other kinds of, of opportunities for collective action in these regions and in, in this community anyway have, have faded away. One of the things that really stood out to me in this book is that you use sort of a geological metaphor to describe sort of past the, the, the relations of past and present rather than a chronological one. Um, you sort of talk about it being more like sort of layers of sedimentation rather than rather than a chrono chronological order. And I was wondering if you could um, sort of if we could sort of talk about that really quickly before moving into the book more properly. Um, you know, at the risk, I mean, I'm a little bit concerned about putting the cart before the horse, but um so your task is to, or the book's task is to excavate these strata, these layers, and and describe their mutual influence. Can you sort of talk about how you came to see things in this fashion rather than in sort of a chronological order? Yeah, absolutely, Tim. So um, this goes back perhaps to the contrast between the first project that I did in this community and this one. In the first project I did in this community, um, I organized the project chronologically because it was about the various socialist it was about what um 
well, it was about the various socialist campaigns that that um, introduced socialism to this community um, in much the same way it was introduced throughout the rest of, of China, and then that tried to shape um, the ways that people related to each other in much the same ways that happened throughout the rest of China. And that chronological ordering, there's, there was something about it that always, I, I knew it was a compromise from the beginning. And it was a compromise with a kind of what at the time I had found an, an kind of impossibility, the impossibility of, of really trying to organize methodologically a, a, a book around the kind of time that it seemed that people were actually living. And so this time, this book, I decided that since the topic was basically ritual and ritualized language, that it was possible to try to make some methodological choices that would that would um, draw a little closer to the ways that in this realm, in the realm of ritualized work on the dead, people really seem to, to that, that really seem to make sense to talk about the ways that people seem to be living and, and expressing themselves and um, relating to each other and to dead people. So, um, I mean, if you think about it, like if you're, if you're, if a, a part of your life is, is spent um, um, working with people who are dead, then, uh, you know, then those like dead people are, are are present in your life. There's they're they're really you know one's life is is a matter of um, you know strata in in that way. But the methodological 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 choice was to try to understand the ways that in the present the um, present ways that people use ritual to communicate with and work with dead people. Um, if you, if you look at those rituals, you can kind of delve down through the, into them and, and, and see the ways that past ritualized forms are, are present in, in those rituals. So, you know, what one example might be, um, well, I, I won't give examples yet. I, I, I think we're going to go through part of the book anyway. So in any case, that, that was a, a methodological choice that was, that was trying to do something a little bit different than that in my, in my first project, um, shaped by uh, what I was perceiving of the ways that people were understanding time in this realm of, of life, this realm of, of ritualized work for and on dead people. Initially had, had sort of been wondering about the, the, the specific logic behind the methodology and that really helps. Um, so I guess um, now we can sort of talk about the, the book is generally oriented in or divided into two parts. Uh, and you describe part one as having been um, a, as being sort of more, uh, conventional anthropology of death, um, describing specific practices associated with this work on the dead from the perspective of the living. Um, and in chapter one, you start with sort of the technology, the introduction of writing as a technology into your community and Chinese language inscription on tombstones. Um, 
Can you talk a little bit more about this, about the Chinese language role um, uh, in Lolopo work on the dead and, and sort of when this sort of started and, and how, I guess? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's totally a fascinating topic to me. Um, I, I really, I'm really interested in this topic. Um, so when I first went to this place, of course, I was looking for difference. It was clear that these this this community of people was um, was a community that that like thought of itself or understood itself to be a kind of community that was a kind of nodal point between um, what people the the places that people thought their ancestors or well the places that people's ancestors came from. That is to say, the places that Lolopo original ancestors came from, which are which were mountains not too far away, the Ailashan, and the sort of lowland Han communities. It was it was a it was a kind of place in between. And one of the the um, one of the things that made it a place in between is that uh, is that people trace their ancestry to all sorts of places, like um, as many people in Yunnan do. Uh, many people people trace their, their ancestry back to Nanjing. Uh, uh, others trace their ancestry to the Ailashan, and then there were places in Sichuan and, and other parts of Yunnan uh, that collected that that uh, w- people had immigrated from, and that uh, so that people from many different places were collected into this community. And then I call it a community because not not that I'm not trying to put very much weight on that word, but there was a way in which people had developed many kind of ways, uh, ways of doing kinship, ways of doing marriage, um, way, ritualized ways of um, s- celebrating uh, yearly festivals, ways that, that kind of tried to bind this place together into a community, all these people from all these different places, right? But when I went to this place, I was looking for difference, difference from Han. And I tended, I tended to avoid the um, things that seemed to be the same as Han. <laughs> and one of those things was Chinese language writing on tombstones. People didn't use Chinese language in their daily lives. They, um, they, uh, Chinese language writing on tombstones was clearly something, you know, imported from, you know, elsewhere. Um, it was strange to me that, you know, there was so much Chinese language writing on tombstones. I photographed, you know, all the tombstones really. Um, but I wasn't very interested in them. And it was only after gaining some distance that I started to look at these, Photographs I'd taken and just and started to really read um, what was written on the tombstones, and this is really turned out to be a, a fascinating thing to me. So the one one of the things that one learns from from reading the tombstones is um, first of all that you asked the you asked about the origins of, of of writing on tombstones. One finds that it was you know it it wasn't until the late 19th or early 20th century that people started to write on tombstones at all, and it was um, it was people families who were trying to maintain a Han identity in a place where they where maintaining a Han identity was very difficult. 
that first started writing on tombstones in Chinese language. It was a way to um, a way to to um, a way to anchor a kind of a, a, a Han identity. That and and um, and of course, tombstones were also a new invention in the late 19th century because before that people had burned their dead um, and put little uh, little square rocks over their ashes you know kind of buried their ashes in little bags and put little square rocks over their ashes and then after the late 19th century people started um, at being influenced by Han immigrants and under a lot of pressure from um, from uh, local officials, started to bury their dead and place tombstones over them. So Lollapuff, uh originally simply placed blank tombstones over their dead, yet those blank tombstones also had um, also had a kind of um, an analog inside people's houses that was a blank sheet of paper. Um, and so there was a way, and, and on that blank sheet of paper was actually, you know, you can't see what, what's written on that sheet of paper, and that's why I'm calling it blank. But that was the place where, um, where you know, various entities from the spirit world wrote the names of the dead and wrote, you know, kind of basically the names of, of people who were about to die. Um, so that's a very important kind of document inside people's houses that didn't have any any writing that one can see on it, but definitely was written. And these blank tombstones were also written in the same way. Um, there was a lot of writing going on even before people started to write in Chinese characters. Um, you know, um, as you know, throughout this region, writing's an, an incredibly important kind of um, idea. So, so Lopo started burying their dead under blank tombstones, and then gradually they picked up the idea of writing on tombstones from these small families clinging to Han identity. And then in the early 20th century and then the mid 20th century, they developed their own way of writing on tombstones in, in, in Chinese. So they gradually elaborated uh, to a far greater extent than any of their Han neighbors. And as in my knowledge, to a greater extent than most you know, um, most tombstones, Han tombstones in, in the region, they elaborated, uh, ways of writing tombstones. So, so, you know, they, they, um, they ended up writing, of course, in, um, some of the writing was, was of course, names and dates of the dead. And then people started to write names of the dead's descendants, uh, names of the descendants, um, you know, uh, uh, large groups of descendants. Some tombstones have a, a, as as many as eighty names of descendants, and then they started to write um, eulogies or biographies for the dead uh, uh, on the stones, and then nostalgic poetry about, um, well, often about uh, socialism and revolution on tombstones as well. So the tombstones eventually started, you know, there wasn't enough space on the stone uh, to do all of this. So they divided tombstones into three. They put three stones over every tomb. Of course, every tomb can, in, in, included, you know, two coffins uh, because people were always buried in pairs, um, you know, conjugal pairs. But so, so, 
you know, tombstones became more and more elaborate as time evolved, and, and they're becoming more elaborate now. Um, one of the things that's happening now is that people, um, people as they write the names of, of the descendants of, of dead people, they're, they're writing the names of descendants, all of the descendants, um, even those whom no one has heard of for years and years, those who are dead, um, those who have who've just disappeared, gone away, gone to the city and um, have their own, you know, families in the city and, and are not communicating back. Um, tombstones are, are important now because they're a place where all of, you know, the descendants of a dead person or uh, people who who um, make themselves into a, a kind of um, a community of related people around a dead person, where all of those people are, are, are gathered in a way that they can't gather um, in the present because there's been so much dispersal and so much di- diaspora. It's really fascinating. The, the whole questions of language, particularly in these in these areas of Southwest China, is really really interesting. Uh, just as a curious side note, do the are the Lulupo one of the communities that sort of has these folk tales about how they used to have? Uh, the, the technology of writing, but one of their ancestors ate it. Yes, indeed. I mean, yes, of course. So, so their their um, version of this is is um, you know uh, they were um, they were given writing by a teacher along with um, a Han person a, and a Tibetan person, and um, the Han person was rich and and uh, could afford paper and and wrote the writing down on paper. The Tibetan person. Um, wrote I, th- I think if I'm remembering this right um, wrote the writing down on on um, oh another medium I'm thinking uh, hide or scan or something but maybe that's not right but anyway it, it was also um, preserved and the Lolpo folk uh, you know were poor of course <laughs> but they um, they were rich enough to have buckwheat pancakes uh, which is the kind of a traveling food so um, they wrote it all down on a buckwheat pancake but on the way home, of course, they got hungry and ate it. So um, they have writing. It's just that they don't write it. In Lopa language, one has writing if one is kind of trained as a ritualist. Um, you know, it's just that one has it in one's body and in one's stomach. Um, and you can say it from there instead of having, having to look at a piece of paper, which in their view, really limits what you can do. Oh, I love I love sort of the way that these some of these tales travel too. Fantastic. Um, so the remainder of part one sort of looks at, and this is sort of chapters two, three, and four. Um, look at how the Lolopo see. Uh, I guess I would say it how how they see bodies and souls, uh, how sacrifices and exchanges create a formal image of an entire social world, even. And also uh, ending off, and you round off part one with sort of a chapter on the art of the lament. Um, and I was wondering if you could sort of talk about how these how these function together in the Lolopo work on the dead. I was recently reading a interview with Eduardo Viveros de Castro, um, and in this interview, he said. You know, it, it seems like it seems like every anthropologist has their sort of um, originary ethnographic moment. And you know, Marilyn Sutherne's ethnographic moment was it. Everything happens as though one guy is handing another guy a conch shell. You know, in Sutherne's work. So you know, the, 
that's of course amusing and and maybe maybe not accurate at all at all and perhaps a little bit you know insulting of, of Strathern. Um, but I was thinking about that that in regard to this book, and I thought, well, you know, if if there's an ethnographic moment like that's that's kind of unwinds itself in in this particular book, it's the moment in which I'm allowed to go to a funeral. So one of the things uh, about funerals in in this place is that they're quite private in a sense. They're they're gatherings of an entire community, yet um, people people do have in the present some concern that outsiders will um, criticize them. And that's a valid concern. It's a concern that was built up over, you know, a a history of of, um, criticism um, from the outside, you know, and and, uh, a history that includes includes terrible things. um, and that includes this, the suppression of all ritual during um, during the 60s and, and 70s. Um, and when I was f- first taken to a funeral, I was basically sent away. I, I had with me a, a kind of uh, an, another outsider, a, a research assistant, I guess, or a spy, a peitong, somebody that was sent along by my unit to take care of me. And um, he, the people who were hosting the funeral said, you know, you guys, if you're going to be here, you have to koto before the, you have to koto, you know, uh, kneel on the ground and knock your head um, before my grandfather, the dead person, um, or else you can leave. And so, and my assistant, who was, who was a E person uh, um, himself, uh, um, not exactly from that place, but from a place nearby said, you know, basically this is an, this is an insult. We have to leave immediately. Um, there's no way I'm going to kowtow to anybody's ancestors and you shouldn't either. I was all ready to do it. I was like, okay. Um, later I was made part of a family and was, um, and as part of a family, I participated in, in funerals as, as a matter of course, and um, was told what to bring and was told how to interact with people and everything worked out quite well. And I, I ended up at many, many funerals. Even though during this, my first field work, you know, I wasn't really that interested in funerals. Um, still, just to be a person, I had to do it over and over and over again. So I, and all of this is just to say, well, perhaps the, the ethnographic moment for this book is standing confused in the, in this courtyard crowded with people, sometimes hundreds of people, um, with an, an enormous hubbub going on. Um, sometimes with this, you know, terrible instrument called a swan, this double reed instrument, um, wailing away often with it, not, you know, because it's expensive to hire somebody to do that, but with people, um, lamenting, uh, you know, wailing themselves with people laughing and shouting with an enormous amount of exchange going on of, you know, um, people cutting up rice cakes, killing goats, cutting up goats, um, passing rice cakes around, um, a guy at the head of the coffin, a guy at the head of a uh, head of a coffin barking orders at everybody, um, cutting up more rice cakes, people bringing grain bags of grain to this guy, grain flowing around, rice cakes flowing around, kids wandering around, running around, just and all of this going on, and people saying all sorts of stuff, um, and trying to 
just being in this moment and trying to understand any bit of it, you know, um, just being confused by every single bit of it, time after time after time. I think that kind of bewilderment is is my ethnographic moment for this book. Um, so the this um, these chapters of this book basically try to unwind something about what a funeral is supposed to be doing. It was clearly and remains clearly an incredibly important thing to be doing. And to the, to the extent that, you know, every dead person is, is not given just one funeral, but many, um, uh, you know, you're given a, a funeral uh, three days after or so days after you die, you're given another one, um, another big one, um, you know, in the first lunar 10th month uh, after you die, um, you're given another one, uh, you know, after your spouse dies and another one in the first, you know, lunar 10th month after, after she dies or he dies. Um, another one is given in um, a couple of decades later. And these are all really big events. And this is not mentioning the small ones because there are many small ceremonies also that are given to, um, performed for, given to the dead, you know, places where people um, gather together to, as we were saying before, work on the dead. And so these chapters basically try to unspool some of that and try to show what it is that people are actually doing and to show some of the, um, some of the quite elaborate and, and really, in my view, lovely poetic work that's going on um, as people do, do what they're, they're doing um, and uh, basically tries to underwind, unwind the, the quite elaborate tech techniques that people are engaging in. Um, it's a very developed, elaborate, uh, complicated technology that people are engaging in a, te- a technology for um, a technology for imaging uh, relations amongst people, um, a technology for um, of knowledge that that gathers uh, what's known about people's relations to each other and to the dead and um, displays them all in one place at one time. Uh, and a technology that transforms dead people from dangerous, um, dangerous, ghostly entities to powerful, stable, anchored ancestors. Um, and that's, you know, so, so that's, those three chapters are, are really all about those different kinds of technologies. Ah, brilliant. Yeah. I, I I love particularly how you sort of talk about the work of the lament in particular. Um, so, um, but then following this, uh, in part two, you examine some you examine the great chance at the center of two ritual events, the tenth month sacrifice and the and one that you call sleeping in the forest. Um, as a folklorist, I love how you use these chants to create a sort of a grounded theory of Lolopo work with and on the dead. Um, and I guess you, you sort of begin this half of the book first with some ethical and methodological questions to your acquisition of the chance. Um, and, and, and 
that that's something that really interested me that you sort of put this as its own chapter. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of these, these questions, but also the motivation for putting it into its own chapter. So the, the second part of this book is, is about two um, very similar, quite long ritual chants. Basically the biggest part of that buckwheat pancake that was given to uh, Lolopo ancestors and that they ate and that skilled ritualists before liberation and in the early 1950s um, would say at two events, uh, an event that was held for people held for dead people in the, um, in the 10th lunar month, um, the year that they died. And then a second event that was held a couple of generations later. And these chants were, um, my interlocutors in, in Juzo, this, this community, many of them remembered these chants and, thought of them as the kind of repository of, of all valuable knowledge about dead people, but also about the world in general. And uh, this, by the time I did fieldwork here, was, of course, colored with a sense that um, – Lolopo were, were an ethnicity now. And so it started to be a matter of kind of ethnic pride, I suppose. Like, so I, I think people might, you know, put it as all Lolopo knowledge about the world, but, but in a sense that was, that meant the same thing, all valuable knowledge about the world and about dead people. Um, ancient knowledge that was passed down from ancestors knowledge that because it was passed down from ancestors was powerful. Yet the people who held this knowledge and were able to speak it um, disappeared, had disappeared by the time I did fieldwork in mm -hmm. this place. They, um, first of all, I, I should say that, that being able to, to, say these two chants was an extraordinary kind of accomplishment. I can't imagine it. These are very long and quite elaborate chants. They, uh, we don't do this kind of thing anymore. Even those of us who are paid to be intellectuals are incapable of memorizing something that is mm, supposed to be said the same way every time and that takes, you know, a, a long time to say, I mean, you know, hours and hours to say at a very rapid, very rapid clip. Um, so this was an, an extraordinary accomplishment and not everybody was up to, up to the task. Uh, a few people were trained to do this by, um, by their teachers and they disappeared, uh, you know, over time. Um, some of them, well, basically, I think the story can be just just said simply that uh, after 
the after these two rituals were forbidden, um, after it was after people started to be persecuted for being um, for having been ritualists who, you know, cheated the people. Um, I'm quoting cheated the people by, by tricking them into, you know, um, paying them to do this kind of thing. I mean, they weren't paid much. They were paid like a goat, but uh, after that happened, then these ritualists all ended up, mm, uh, you know, dying because uh, of physical persecution during the Cultural Revolution or dying because they're the spirits that gave them the capacity to remember and, and perform these chants um, being dissatisfied that they no longer performed these chants, um, you know, made them ill and killed them. They were all dead in any case. And I was told repeatedly that they were all dead. And so, um, and that was fine with me. I mean, I really had no interest in this kind of old stuff. I was interested in socialism and what was going on in, in the present and, and the recent past. Um, and this kind of old stuff was really, um, you know, similar kinds of uh, uh, similar. I had the, the sense that similar um, oral literature had been collected by uh, teams of ethnographers in China in the fifties. And, you know, it was basically written in translation and was available. And so I, I really didn't have any interest, very much interest, but eventually, um, one of the folks who had made me their own project, um, there were many different kinds, not many, but several different kinds of people who made me their own project. And, and one kind, one kind um, thought that I should really be working on funerals and funeral rituals, which I didn't care that much about initially. Um, one of those, those folks uh, basically made a discovery that a cousin of his or a cousin of his wife um, had been one of the skilled ritual practitioners who could who could perform these chants and he lived still in a village that was you know a, a day's walk away or so and he had fled there during the 50s um and he had missed much of the difficulties of the cultural revolution um he was living in this place um uh, high mountain place, um, farming buckwheat. Um, these places existed quite well for a while, uh, by farming hemp and buckwheat and, um, and cutting trees, uh, before all that became, you know, unprofitable. And, uh, and my friend suggested that we go visit this guy. So we did. And, and I was kind of carried along by his enthusiasm and, we went and we negotiated with this chap to um, allow us to record these two chants. And I really didn't have much of a good control over the situation or a very good sense of what was going on. Um, my friend did most of the negotiating. Um, I ended up paying this guy a few hundred yuan to record his chants. And, uh, 
his condition was that he was living with um, the spirit that had allowed him, gave him the power to say these chants, and that this spirit um, was making him sick uh, for decades repeatedly because he was unable to perform this chant in context. Um, he was able to continue, he was able to say it because every year he did perform it at least once for this spirit in order to appease this spirit. Yet, yet that didn't work very well because, um, because it wasn't actually in the right kind of context. It wasn't during a funeral. And, and his wife was adamantly opposed to, to his doing this because she knew it made him sick. And so we ended up getting this chant from this guy and taking it basically in the form of a recording. Um, and paying him for it. And then, you know, well, I came back a few years later and he had died and he had died. Uh, my friend, it became clear to me that he, that many people believe that he had died in part because of my interaction with him. So obviously I, this has been something that's troubled me for a long time. And really, um, this book was written as a way to deal with that trouble, I guess. And so I wanted to be as honest as I could in this chapter about just what it, what that interaction was without really trying to justify it or say um, that it was, or have a kind of theory of how I was or wasn't being ethical, but just trying to say what was going on and what, what had happened. Um, and since then, uh, I, I've had these recordings, and after, after this man who um, – I give a pseudonym in this book. The pseudonym is Libitzel. Um, after this man died, there was nobody else who had this huge chunk of the buckwheat cake except me in the, in the form of recordings. I, I made several attempts to distribute recordings. Um, I would distribute them to, them to ritualists I knew, um, along with tape recorders. Um, eventually, I distributed uh, CDs um, to people who had sons or nephews who had computers. Uh, none of that really seemed to work very well. I, the tape recordings, I found some of them in uh, the county town in the Cultural Bureau, sort of locked up in a in a uh, in a display case um, because they'd been basically confiscated and made part of culture, um, <laughs> you know, and preserved as part of culture and no one was listening to them. And others were burned when um, this, when the rituals I gave to them had died, they were, they were burned with their belongings along with uh, the rest of their belongings with in an exorcism. Um, so I I knew I had to do something with them and 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 writing these the last part of this book was an attempt to uh, I don't know work out the trouble um uh to try to to try to make these uh, recordings of this chant live in some way that was not just in a desk drawer of my own um obviously it's not doing I mean, obviously, it's just a book in English. I mean, I'm, that's it's kind of pitiful. Um, I hope that uh, I can at some point 
put the recordings up on a, on a website that everyone, um, any Lollapool person could gain access to, um, in such a way that would, that would work out and that scholars can gain access to as well. But for the moment, this book is, is what I've got. Uh, incredible. This is so many, so many of these questions are things I think many of us grapple with, although the specific circumstances are almost undoubtedly different, but all of us working in, in China and doing interview work and collecting, collecting culture as it were. Um, I, I think this will be, um, really valuable to, to all of us uh, to sort of help us think through these questions as well. So thank you. Um, I guess really quickly, um, I was wondering if you could just maybe um, in the in the briefest of terms, I'm sort of cognizant of your time, um, but sort of take us through sort of then the remainder of part two, which to sort of um, sort of how these uh, how these chants um, tell us about, um, personal relations between the dead and the kin or, you know, how they, how they help us understand this, uh, this work on the Lolopo work on the dead. Yeah. So, um, so uh, three chapters of this book explore these chants. They were really fun to write. Um, it was, and they were very challenging to write. Um, just, just recording, I mean, just uh, transcribing and, and translating the chants was a very um, long and difficult process. Um, uh, trying to understand them, uh, trying to find a way to represent them was a difficult process because they're very, they're like many um, other forms of what one might call oral literature. They're, they're constructed to be embodied. I mean, they're really constructed to be to be made part of one's body and to be, and to, and to, you know, be expressed from or emit from the body. And, and, and so they have embodied characteristics. Uh, they're, they have a lot of repetition. Um, they are modular. Um, so, and, and the, you know, so they, they basically are broken into these modular kind of chunks that are called songs. Uh, they're broken into many of those songs. And then each song has a, has a, a kind of introduction and conclusion that's the same as every other song. And then there's a part in between that's different. And uh, they're, uh, they're, they have a lot of parallelism in, 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 to, in them as well. And that's also uh, one of the characteristics of, of oral poetry, um, parallelism of many kinds that connects, um, uh, you know, verses to verses that connects songs to songs that, uh, that spread throughout the whole, the structure. Um, there's, there is a structure, the structure unfolds the creation of the world. Um, it, uh, and then it unfolds a kind of theory of what dead souls are. And then it unfolds a kind of theory of what dead bodies are. It's, uh, I, I learned to look at this chant as, uh, what it, so one of the things that I, that became clear to me in my interaction with, with Lee Bitsong and also other ritualists who remembered these chants and, and who knew a lot about how to do this stuff was that, you know, um, the chants were really nothing unless they were, were performed in the presence of dead people. They were dialogues with dead people. 
and they created their own specific kind of um, really world of interrelation between dead people and living people. And I learned to look at them as an effort to to make this world of interaction, to 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 make it vibrant, to put it into speech, to to reel it out um, in speech, in dialogue with every dead person who had died, um, as a way to to transform dead people, you know, to continue the work that was transforming you know dead people into into ancestors, but also as a way to. In, the transform transform part of the transformation was really creating a world of interaction, a world that dead people inhabited and that, that inhabited in part in, in, in relation to living people. So I learned to do that. So um, I divided the chant into three parts, a part that, that was about the, the, the creation of this world uh, and a part that was about the, the soul of the dead and a part that was about the body of the dead. And, and one of the things I learned was that um, as the chant unfolded was that really um, this world of interaction was um, was a world in which there were all these analogs and that these analogs, um, that is to say, all sorts of analogs with what might be called, a, what throughout the book I call a dead body. And that, um, and that in the end, I found, I learned that that the earth itself is an analog to the dead body, that it's understood in this chant, in this interaction between dead and living people that the chant does. It's understood as a dead body, Um, a dead body on which all sorts of work has been done, uh, that, um, and that, you know, another analog of a dead body is, you know, a construction made out of sticks and, 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 um, and little, uh, little animals and leaves and, uh, all sorts of other stuff, um, uh, very explicitly meant to be a dead, a dead person's body or all sorts of, um, other analogs, you know, the valley uh, that these people live in too can be con- considered as a, a, a dead body in the same way. So, so, um, together, so working on this chant, um, Working on this this chant taught me a kind of understanding of this um, a, a certain way of thinking about and working on the world itself that was um, all about working on dead bodies. So in the end, it turns out that working on on a dead body is 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 not just working on a specific dead person. That there's all sorts of ways in which in which it's about living in the world and working on the world itself. It's such a great way to approach sort of these, uh, these low level ways of understanding their work on the dead. And, um, wow. Um, well, we've taken up a lot of your time here. Um, and I want to thank you again for, for, for giving so much of your time. Cause it is really, um, it's just been a really fascinating conversation. I've been really delighted to, to be able to talk with you. Um, but before we let you go, I was wondering if you'd be willing to tell me a little bit about what you're working on now. Right now, I'm trying to understand a an archive, really. It's an archive that was discovered by a linguist named Mashrilian, who was sent by his teachers to two counties in northern Yunnan 
Luchen Wuding, to collect manuscripts in one of the six scripts that we now called e we now call e scripts. This is was known at the time as Loho or Lo in Chinese Lo and in local language Loho Luho uh, script. And Ma Shiliang eventually made his way to the hereditary house of a um of a e or luho hereditary ch- chief so um as you know uh in many parts of western china um local governance uh happened uh, through a kind of indirect form of indirect governance in which um, in which at the very local level um, native hereditary chiefs uh, basically um, were allowed to have a certain kind of local power and uh, to inherit that power so he ended up in the house of this chief and he there he found and this was in the forties <laughs> and there was one woman living in this house along with, you know, her, her servants and, um, her, uh, yeah, I guess just call them servants. Um, and she showed him her archive, <laughs> which was a stone room that contained the rec- the genealogical records and the records, the legal records and the records of reporting to the magistrate, the county, the, uh, prefectural mag- magistrate of her lineage of chiefs, and these chiefs are the Na, the Nash, the Na uh, dynasty, I guess you would say, of chiefs who um, held power under a great deal of pressure from un- under under the regime regime that we call um, what do we call it in in. Uh, um, uh, I'm trying to remember what we call it in English, but under under a, a regime in which chiefs were basically um, demoted and and uh, controlled, and um, uh, in any case, they'd held power in in that region. And so there there many of these records are in Chinese, and they're really really interesting. And many of the records are in the E script, and they're incredibly interesting as well. And I'm just trying to understand what this archive is, both parts of it. If you would say both languages, um, there are many parts, many kind of different kinds of documents, but the the documents in both languages and to try to really um, be able to say something about what uh, the life of this house was, of this incredibly important house that was the center of this region and to say something about how it worked across two languages, across um, different forms of, um, you know, sort of local authority across like, you know, uh, you know, chiefs who were trying to be kind of Confucian officials uh, in relation to their superiors at the, at the prefectural level. And, traditional sort of rulers, I guess, traditional, if you will, sort of rulers in relation to their subjects and negotiating this very, very difficult kind of position. I'm, I'm just trying to understand how, how that works. Uh, it sounds really fascinating, Eric. Um, 
I'm really excited to start seeing seeing some of the the conclusions you come to. Um, well, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation, and um, and I'd like to thank you. So, uh, thanks very much for being on, and take care. Thanks, Tim. It was a lot of fun. <laughs>